like that. Come on, let's give the church choir some praise this morning. That's good. Deacon Baysmore, do me a favor. Would you go ask Mrs. Jones to give me a small cup of orange juice, just a small cup? I appreciate it. Thank you so much, church choir. That is a different sound. I don't think I've ever heard that sound from you. That sounds good. I like that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Amen. Almost made me think I was falling in love again or something. <laughs> Such a subtle sound. That's wonderful. Would you join me this morning in the book of Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read verses 7 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I did eat. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. The amazing creature in the text, obviously, is the serpent to whom we have been taught in Western civilization theologically that this serpent represents Satan and that this very well may be at least the entry point of evil in reference to the existence of humans. What I find interesting about the story is that we read it so fast that we end up glossing over some very significant but yet hidden points in this text. You have in verse 13 really the confession of the woman who is confessing to the consequence in verse 8 through 12, which is a result of nothing more than the condition that the serpent created in verse 7. What I want us to do, just sit it right there, what I want us to do is take a look at something that we probably overlooked significantly. The serpent, amazingly, is the creature whose venom can destroy you, make you sick, and ultimately become your death. But yet, 
there are certain snake bites in order to be healed from the venom it actually takes the venom to reverse for the healing and maybe as some scholars have suggest this story even if you don't look at it from its literal sense is a metaphorical gesture to suggest to us that out of the same fountain can come words that pose as venom and can yet come words that are as sweet as water. Maybe the story is suggesting to us that out of this creature called a serpent, trying to tell us, be careful though, in which the words come may just very well be words that are challenging you to examine the depths to which the words are spoken. Out of this same mouth comes words that are deceptive. And yet we hear no more spoken from the serpent from this point forward in the biblical record. And yet God makes clear that we understand that the serpent is not only a type of vileness, and yet the serpent will serve as a type of healing. For Moses will come along later and God would use Moses to take a rod and turn it into a serpent and then reverse the same serpent back into the rod. God would use the same creature to heal Israel from their sin in the wilderness. For Moses will come and say, as the serpent is lifted up, every eye that looks to the serpent on the pole shall find healing from their sin. And if that's not confirming enough, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes along and says, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Isn't it amazing how what starts out in Genesis is the presence of evil. And yet inadvertently before we get to Genesis chapter 45, we hear God fulfilling prophetically what was meant for evil, God turns it around and uses it for the good. I'm trying to get us to see here that although the words that came out of the mouth of a particular individual or something or someone might be vile, don't be too quick to discount them because those could be the very same words that bring about your deliverance in another manner. Here we are in the text. They were invited, the man and the woman, to experience and receive what they had never possessed before. A compilation of words that are posed by the serpent in the form of a question sent them on an emotional as well as a mental journey of curiosity and compromise. Here's something you may have overlooked in the text as well. When you read verse 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty, more subtle than any other creature. And the serpent comes to the woman and says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree 
of the garden? Well, the immediate question has to be, how did you know that I wasn't supposed to eat from the tree in the garden? Which might suggest to us that either the serpent was in proximity of the conversation or they were sharing what they should not have been sharing. For God had given this word directly unto Adam of what they are not supposed to do in reference to the trees in the garden. Oh, Adam is not without criticism in this text. Very quickly, I know what Paul says in both the Timothy letter as well as he says in Romans, how he argues that the woman was initially deceived and not Adam. But there's something that Paul doesn't also tell you. Paul doesn't further tell you that Adam certainly should have been able to discern what the serpent was saying, considering that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, it was God that gave Adam the authority to name every creature. And Adam named these creatures based off his own discerning of the behaviors of the creature. So if anybody should have known that this serpent had no good intention, it should have been Adam who knew it in the first place. And yet Adam leaves his wife exposed to the potentiality of being dropped by evilness. That's why as the text progresses, it provides the man as a covering over his wife because this was his responsibility to make sure that harm does not come to the context of his extension. Remember, God puts him to sleep. Here's a good thing. The man don't really have a lot to brag about because he's made from the dust of the earth. And the woman is made from the extension of who the man is, the rib internally. So she's made of substantives of living. He's made from dust. So much so that God says as a result of the consequence, when you die, dust from which you were created and dust you going back to. So Adam is not without criticism in the text. He's not left alone. I mean, he stands back and ends up telling God when God comes into the garden in the cool of the eating and raises the question, where are you? And he says, I hid myself because I was afraid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? That's what he said. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that? And he said, it was that woman passing the book. I, I can't take responsibility for this, God. If you hadn't given me her, this wouldn't have happened. Yet, when he woke up from his sleep and saw her, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yet, in the crunches of a moment when he should have stood up and said, God, I'm responsible for what has happened in this garden, he looks at God and says, it was that woman that you gave to be with me. So the serpent sends them off on a journey of emotional and mental gymnastics that they've never had to experience before. They had to wrestle with what the serpent said in verse 4. Did God really say that you were going to die if you ate 
from a particular tree. Your eyes will be open is God's fear and you will be like God and knowing the difference between good and evil. What the serpent had done was coated the words with deception, sending the woman and the man on a quest for something that they had never desired nor needed before. We call it autonomy. Autonomy. Autonomy simply means that I have the right and the conditions to self-govern myself. I am free from external control of influence. I am independent of all, including sovereignty, control over my life. I am the boss. I am in control of what I decide to say and do. And reading the text, the serpent convinced the woman that there is a new world out there, that there is greener grass on the other side of what your vision is now, that there's a new world waiting for you to take it, and that freedom is what God fears the most, and God does not want you to know how to discern what is good and what is bad. You got to be careful when you are invited to explore that the grass may be greener on the other side. Because what ends up happening is you get what you want, but you lose what you had. When you read this story, you realize it's verse 7, I think it is, tells us that when they she partook of the fruit and gave it to Adam when they both end up following the serpent's direction their eyes were open and they suddenly realized we are naked they shifted to the other side of what they previously were in a state of shamelessness to a state now of being shameful before their eyes were open, they knew nothing of what it meant to be shamed. They, they saw themselves in a naked form and yet saw glory because nothing had contaminated their vision. But now that their eyes are open, shame now at the invitation of serpent who invited them to come over to the other side because the grass is far more greener over here. So plenteous that no matter what you put in its landscape, it will grow, it will magnify, it will multiply, it will supply all that you need in terms of your own satisfaction. And there they were, now their eyes have opened, and instead of rejoicing, having a party, being happy that they can see, they become shameful. Quickly run to hide themselves and then cover themselves. But they are nothing more than representations of who we are in terms of duality. Standing forth, big and bad enough to cross the line. And then when we recognize that the consequence is too grave to face, we slip back to try to hide, hoping that God cannot see where we are. 
knowing that in Psalm 137 and 139 tells us that no matter where we go, his eyes are already there. Says the psalmist, if I ascend to the heaven, there God is. If I descend to the lows of the earth, there God is. No matter how far I go to the east or the west or the north or the south, God is still right there. And you look at this story, isn't this something? How come God comes to the garden in the cool of the evening? Wait a minute, I thought God was already there. Because if God is omnipresent, that means that no matter where you are, God is already there. If you are in Carolina, and I'm stationed here in Virginia, someone else is in Pennsylvania, God is still in all three locations at the same time. How is it that he has to come in the cool of the evening to, in the evening to walk and then raise the question to Adam? And that's simply because God wants Adam to know, you tried to slip and hide from me, but don't you know, no matter where you go and what you do, I already knew. And I'm already there. And he surprises Adam to some degree when Adam says, I was naked and when I found out who I was, I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were, did you do what I told you not to do? Did you eat from that tree? It wasn't me, God. It was that woman that you gave me. She, she started all of this. And this is what we do when we get what we want and then we come to recognize that the consequence wasn't worth it. We try to find someone else to blame for our maladies and our deficiencies, not remembering that we have to beware of Satan's words when Satan speaks, because Satan will never engage your consciousness. Satan will never challenge you to think about what I'm saying before you do it. He will never get to the point where he will allow you to rationalize and to think through, which is the one exercise in the human anatomy that we have over any other creature. We can think and rationalize, is this the right thing to do? Do I need to cross over that line? Do I get what I want? But if I get what I want, do I lose what I already have? Satan never engages us in terms of our consciousness. Satan will never explain consequences. Satan will never tell you that if you cross that line, now here's what's going to happen in return. Instead, there is a magnification of gratification. You want it. You deserve it. Let me see if I can come down your street in reality. How many of us have made a decision to purchase something Knowing that we didn't really have the money to pay for it as that note came due every month. But because I wanted it, and to justify that, I deserved it. Hey, I work hard like everybody else, and I'm going to get some things in life that I want, not remembering you can get it, but can you keep it by paying for it? Even better than that, can I sleep peacefully at night? 
not having to worry about if I don't go to work tomorrow, will my check show up short and I won't be able to make that note at the end of the month? You got what you wanted, but you lost what you had. The freedom to be at peace. Satan never explains the consequences. And then notice that Satan never encourages convictions. So you already know, you've heard from your mothers and fathers and ancestry. Live within your means. Come on, I know somebody has heard that other than me. Come on, my daddy used to always tell me, don't, don't live beyond your means. In fact, live below what you got. Remedies to tell us about always be prepared for a what? Rainy day. Could we not metaphorically see that there's a rainy day in the garden in Genesis 3? And that was not the anticipation, obviously, by Adam nor the woman, that the serpent would reign on their parade. A parade of perfection. A parade of protection. A parade of being in the presence of God and having God to watch over every aspect and provide for you. They stepped out of their means and decided to pursue what Satan says is an emotional and mental gymnastic. Go after. You deserve it. You have a right to have what you desire. Knowing internally there's a conviction in your heart, I don't need that. Those of us who have been married for a long time know that there are some times we probably had some invitations to step outside of that marital right. Don't say amen. I don't want you to say amen. Don't say nothing. Just, just roll with me. Roll with me. Roll with me. But there was a conviction in us. In fact, we had come to learn over 30, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, every day ain't going to be a sunshine day with somebody. You come to realize that you might be in love but there are some days that you just don't love that person. Come on, you ain't got to, don't say anything, don't say anything. But I, I feel you, I feel you. But you also know that you have a conviction. And that conviction is, I made a commitment. And in making that commitment, it became a part of my lifestyle that I am convinced that this is my marital partner. And no matter how dark the moment is, we're going to persevere through this storm. And the text reminds us that that's how it is when it comes to our relationship with God, that there are some moments in which it seems like we should disregard our convictions, lay them aside, and entertain what our hearts desire in terms of outside of the realm of God, only to understand, why would I leave the God who never left me. Why would I leave God in the midst of all of my imperfections maintain God's perfection? Why would I step out and disregard? But I have, and you have as well. We've turned our backs and there are times when we have laid those convictions down. But thanks be unto God that the God that we serve never disregards the convictions that that God has of us. And whenever we step out of that realm, he waits with open arms 
to remind us that you're free to come back home anytime. In fact, wherever you go, that's where I am. That's the reason why when you're in the midst of that mess and you feel a sense of guilt, that's God working on the consciousness of who we are to remind us this is not where you are intended to be. So what is the text trying to tell us? I want to borrow from Kenneth Matthews, a New Testament scholar who says that here's an amazing thing about this story. The woman listened to the serpent. The man listened to the woman, but nobody listened to God. And God made it clear, you, you can eat of all of the trees, but that one in the middle of the garden, don't bother it. For the day that you do, you will surely die. For us, on this side of the garden experience, now that our eyes are open, what will we do going forward? For there is something good that came out of the garden, even though it looked like it was a dark moment. See, when you begin to read verses 8 through 12, it's simply that dialogue between God and Adam in reference to the work to which Adam had done in violating the very word of God. But notice what the woman does in verse 13. That's the ultimate of this text. She does something that both of us have a hard time doing, you and I. She confesses that I blew it. She says, the serpent deceived me. And I did what he said. I confess I am the reason why this thing has fell apart. I realized that God had given me direction as to where God wanted me to go in life, but I decided to take the advice of folk in my ears, and I took another direction. And now that my life is a mess, stuff is chaotic, stuff all around me is falling to pieces, I've come to the place that I might as well recognize it's my fault. But what I really came to tell you this morning is your eyes being open is not necessarily a bad thing. It might be the very one thing that you need to transform your life. Now, how do I come to the premise of that? Well, check this out very thoroughly. Notice that when her, the eyes were open, what eye-opening experience can do is, number one, introduce you to reality. Have you noticed how many times that we have expressed gratitude after hearing the truth about something or someone, we say in essence, but after my eyes were open and I see now really what was going on, I became appreciative to the fact that now I can see before my eyes were closed. Not only opening up to reality, but eye-opening can also open us to change. If it hadn't been for my eyes being open to reality, change may not have been possible. For now that things are different, I respond differently and according to the way those things have now experienced me. So now I'm forced to wrestle between two actions. 
When words are spoken and my eyes are open, do I A, react? Because reaction generally has a negative connotation. That generally means, for example, we take a friend to the physician and the physician says, your friend had a negative reaction to the medication. Or do I respond? You take that same friend to the physician and the physician said, your friend responded to the medication very well. Do you see the difference? Reacting may very well mean I'm going to go down the wrong path because I have jumped over and my mind and my body is not prepared to experience what I'm about to experience. But responding says my mind and my body is conducive with what's coming. I can handle it. I'm able to be able to work with it. And whenever it occurs, whatever words they were, those spoken words put me in the position that I can say I'm now ready to move forward because my eyes were open. And I need the same venom that was intended to harm me is the same venom that can be the very cure to deliver me. So again, what they meant for evil, God can turn it around for the good. So even in hearing, that reservoir, says James, that can put out both bitter and sweet water, it doesn't necessarily disregard the fountain itself. Do you hear what I'm saying? So the fountain can bring forth water that's bitter, and it can bring forth water that's sweet, but I need the fountain to get the water. God, I wish y'all could help me could catch up with me. I need that venue to share whatever it is it's got to share so now I can utilize what was meant to be a violation. See, now I know how to discern between what's good and what's evil. Now I know what's bitter and what's sweet. Thanks be unto God, I have now that ability to know when someone is a bitter person or a sweet person trying to contribute to my context. Good God Almighty, I wish I had somebody... So here it is right here in the text. Here it is right here. So as a result of that, now I have to wrestle between do I react to what somebody say or do I respond to what somebody say? If I react, I'm probably going to do so in anger and read them up and down, back and forth and give them a piece of my mind. But if I respond, I'm going to sit there and with a dignified answer, let them know the same language and context that I'm trying to convey, not in an anger, but in a positive manner. And then I'm going to turn around and walk away like I am somebody that they've never seen before. There's a difference. And I have to wrestle between the two. The woman reacted to the harmful, deceitful words of the serpent. But notice God responded to a bad decision by his children. Satan's words were only good to entice, that's verse 6, the physical appeal and the aesthetic appeal 
That's why you have to be careful when people try to invite you to places and to other people and to circumstances that are not honoring. Don't let it just please your eyes. I'm going to give you a good example of this. And I know y'all don't know it, but the, and it's, it's quite uh, simplistic, but yet it, it's profound. What happens when your eyes miss you? I always wanted a BMW. And Bishop Paul, I messed around and bought one. Yeah, I bought one, man, and I thought I was something, man. I drove, man, you tell me, I drove that thing home, boy, you couldn't tell me nothing. You hear me? But I am here to tell you, my eyes were gratified, black on black, had those nice chrome wheels, 750. I mean, I was rolling, Minister X, I was rolling. But I'm here to tell you, because of my eyes and my physical gratification, that car gave me more headache than any car I've ever had in my life. Every, no, every week. Something was wrong. Every week. Something was going wrong and I had to spend money to fix it. Until I got to the place where I said, you know what? This might be a clear sign. As much as you desire, this ain't for you, bro. Man, I took that thing and traded and got myself a pickup truck and haven't had one day of problems since. And read, I, I'm just trying to tell you, some things your eyes will make you think you really want and need. You don't really need it. I bought a pair of shoes. Now, here, now check this out. Now, here I am. I, be, because of my, my size, I wear a, a 12 triple E shoe. That, that means it got had a little width. My whole family on my mother's side, we got bad feet. That's why I got my feet from my mother's side. They just wide and they could go wider. That, that I can find a shoe that had. Oh, you should have saw me. I found a pair of Italian shoes. I just couldn't resist these Italian shoes. I had to have them because they just looked so good in the magazine. Eyes. I'm talking about eyes. I'm talking about physical desire. I'm, I'm talking about gratification. Man, when I got them shoes in the mail, never forget, boy, I said, this is going to be tight this Sunday. When I step in with these, boy, you couldn't tell me nothing. Man, them shoes were so tight. I couldn't even get three of my toes into that shoe. You're talking about putting my... My whole foot said, this ain't happening today. We are, this does not work for us. Man, I sent them shoes back so fast, boy, I could have beat Federal Express going back to where them shoes came from. My eyes. I got what I wanted, but I lost what I had. And some of us do that. We, we think that we want something else and, and we want to get out of God. I'm just so tired of God. God's so late. His timing is just not like my timing. And God, God just doesn't do things the way I, I want God to handle this. I want to handle it right now. I, I want God to work it out this way. I want to cross the T this way and dot the I this way. And God, you, I just got to, I got to get ahead of God and I get what I want. But then I lose what I had, a peace of mind, stability, hope, inspiration, protection. 
And then there's another time when I got ahead of God. I thought God was just taking entirely too long to do what I asked him to do. I just said, you know, maybe. And here's the rationality. Well, maybe God is moving me to do this. This is my season. This is my season to do this, and I'm going to do it. And I got ahead of God. I just decided to, I, I, I come back when I get to where I'm, I'm going. I'll come back and get you, God, and say thank you. And say thank you. Only to discover. I got what I wanted. But I lost all of the freedom and the protection that I had because I wanted autonomy. I wanted to be free of God's control. I didn't want God to lead my every steps. And so the psalmist says that the steps of a good man are ordered by God. What does that mean? That, that means that God is the one who will set the criteria and give the direction. And, and all I got to do is just follow. Isn't that simple? Just, fo just follow. All you got to do is just follow. I'll lead. I'll protect. Whatever comes up, don't worry about it. I, I, no. Let me interject my ability, God, because I know my enemy better than you do. And Eve says, I blew it. I messed it up. The words of the serpent deceived me. I got what I wanted. My eyes were open. But I lost what I had. An exposure that I didn't really know that would happen to me. That's what God came to tell someone this morning. Be careful when you try to get out of God's protection and be careful what you ask for. Because the serpent has a desire to not lead you down the path of righteousness. Says the writer in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof is destruction. It seemed right to eat of the fruit. But the end was destruction. Now let me just say this final point and then I'm done. It's amazing how in the text when God says, if you do, you will surely die. But they didn't die physically. But there was something within them that died. Not all deaths are physical deaths. Some deaths are mental and emotional and spiritual. There is a sense of loneliness and isolation. There's a sense of being cut off. And that's what the text really means in the Hebrew. It means being cut off from the provision of God and protection of God. Do you realize the magnitude of that statement? You will surely die. And you just read further on in the text. You can ask any woman, she might think she's dying when she tells you those 35 hours of labor giving birth to that child. She probably thought she was dying. That's the consequence. Read further, the text tells you that now the man must live by the sweat of his brow. You, one translation, you got to work for everything you get. 
That's the consequence. Because you got what you wanted. But before you had the provision that everything you needed, God already supplied it. You lost what you had. Now you got to work, says the text. You got to till the ground of the earth. In fact, the earth will yield you, O King James, thorns and thistles. That means that you'll find disappointment all throughout your years of employment. A little jab here and a little jab there. That's life from this point forward. That's what happens when you get what you want, but you lose what you once had. That's what the text is trying to tell us. How are you going to react or if you're going to respond to the words that are spoken to you? Deceitful or not, it requires a reaction by our spirit. So the man, not absent from what God is doing, not absent from the responsibility, but must also yield to the words of the woman the serpent deceived me, and I did eat. But here's a word that's quite powerful. Adam passed the buck on. But the second Adam said that the buck stops with me. The first Adam says that I just can't take responsibility for what happened in this garden. But the second Adam says, I will take all the responsibility of what happened in that garden. So much so that even in my state of dying, I will stop dying long enough to show you just how much I love those who failed in the garden. And on that cross between two thieves, he stops to save a thief. And rather the other thief realized it enough or not, redemption was made possible even there on the cross at his own unbeknowing. And that's what we can rejoice about today. Even when I try to pass the buck on, Jesus makes it clear, just pass it on to me. On that hill far away and that old rugged cross, that emblem of Guilt, emblem of guilt and shame, give it to me. Let me be the one who embrace whether the words are bitter or, bitter or sweet, or sweet. When they come out from me, I in return can only speak words of spirit and life. All from a cross. See, in the garden, it was a tree that gave us the knowledge of good and evil. But on the cross, it's a tree that gave us the knowledge of life and death. And that's why we have rejoiced this morning that we're so grateful that because of that tree on Calvary's hill, we got reason now to rejoice that we don't have to lose what we got. We can maintain it by holding close to the cross of Calvary. Well, that's what God does for us through the second Adam. Life and life more abundantly. Whereas life came, says Paul, in the first Adam of death, now life comes in the second Adam 
of eternity. We now get to live eternally with the living Lord who calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light of his grace. You got what you wanted, but you lost what you had. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it, but once you get it, you might realize you don't want it. The worst thing is you can't give it back. Father, thank you.